A few weeks ago, we started reading the letter to the Philippians. We did that for a couple of weeks, and then last week we took a break so that we could focus our attention and our energy on the resources that we distributed for a church that wants to fight for black lives. And to be clear, that, that effort to be a church that wants to fight for black lives, that's not a moment, right? I mean, that's something that needs to be ongoing in our life together, and it will be. Uh, but today we are going to come back to the letter to the Philippians, and especially because it actually has a lot to say to us about the moment that we are living in right now. So, um, so we're going to jump into it. We're at the end of chapter 1, and then we're moving into chapter 2 in this letter that was written a couple thousand years ago to a small Jesus community in the city of Philippi. And we're going to see what it has to say to us today. Let me start with uh, chapter 1, verse 27, where Paul says, Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Let's hang out there for a moment. He uses that word gospel again, and I want to remind you again of how big and robust this word is. Right? Jesus in Matthew 4 is going around preaching the gospel. And we read there that the gospel is about the good news of the kingdom of the heavens or the kingdom of God. Which is to say, first of all, that he's going around saying God is rampantly available. And any preacher or politician or voice or system that has convinced you that God is scarce or that God is against you or that they have a monopoly on God, they're wrong. Because he's going around saying the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven is available right now. And then he looks out and names the worst kinds of circumstances and the most excluded kinds of people and says the kingdom of God is yours. So we have this, this availability of God, of um, that ultimate reality, which is love, which has given life to all of us. That reality is, is here and is for us. And in fact, in spite of whatever we have done to live contrary to that reality, uh, to live contrary to God or God's kingdom, in spite of all of that, a reconciliation has been offered. And we can expect a kind of arms wide open welcome in the presence of God and on top of that, this gospel, this availability of God, this coming of the kingdom promises and proclaims a different kind of world that's possible right, like right here, right now, in the midst of the world that we see as it is. That's really important too, right? The gospel is not just about what happens when we die. It is a proclamation about the possibility of the world that we are living in right now. And so Paul says, uh, live a life worthy of that. Conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of that. Now, when he talks about living a life worthy or conducting yourself in a manner worthy, he actually uses a strange, uh, very infrequently used Greek word. It's kind of a technical word. And it means literally to be a citizen of or to act like a citizen of. And in this case, then it's act like a citizen of the gospel. Like, like be the kind of person that resembles the world that has been promised by this gospel, as if to say that wherever you are, whatever land you are on, wherever you find yourself, whoever you find yourself among, whatever other labels or identity, identities or, or citizenship that you think of as describing yourself, all of that gets sort of set aside for your belonging and identity in this world that is promised with the presence of God. And if you find yourself holding on to a different citizenship, than the one that's all around you in spite of uh, the time and place where you find yourself, a lot else changes about your behavior, about your sense of history and future, about the way that you mark time, about the symbols that mean something to you. Uh, I've had a couple of really potent object lessons in this idea that I've, I've seen in my life. A few years ago, I was in the Middle East and uh, spent a few nights in Jerusalem. And there in the hotel, the group that I was with 
uh, we all woke up one morning and discovered that some of our phones had one time uh, on the phone and some of our phones had another and they were off by an hour. And we were confused until we asked around and here's what we found out. So this was actually the weekend that I think it was the Israelis were switching over from daylight saving time to standard time. But the Palestinians, uh, they have a different weekend when they choose to do that. And we're in Jerusalem, where Israelis and Palestinians both stake very fervent claims of history and belonging and relationship and identity to say that like, who we are is tied to this place and this place is a part of our history and our future. And these competing notions of citizenship or belonging, they all get played out in the way they literally keep time because they see keeping time as a matter of resistance. Of, of saying to themselves and the world around them, I'm a part of one picture of the world, not another picture of the world. I see myself through one lens on history and the future and not another. Uh, also, I was in Northern Ireland, another place marked by a complicated history of conflict. And there what I noticed was also the ways that different people speak about what they are a part of and what they belong to. And so, um, Roughly, and, and this will be a really poor superficial treatment of the complexity of things in Northern Ireland, but you know, Northern Ireland is the northern part of the island of Ireland, and Northern Ireland is part of the United Kingdom. And so there are people in Northern Ireland whose, whose real sense of citizenship, of belonging, of history and future is tied into the United Kingdom. And then there are other people who have a deep sense of citizenship and belonging and history and future that they see associated with the island of Ireland as a whole and the people of Ireland as a whole, distinct from the United Kingdom. And I mean, again, we could go deep into that history and its current expression. Uh, but with that backdrop, if you go to Northern Ireland and, you, and people are willing to share with you their perspective, you'll discover that like some people will talk about living in Northern Ireland, other people have other names for the same place where they live because to call it Northern Ireland is perhaps to, to buy into or to participate in the idea that this is part of the United Kingdom. And if you don't think it should be, you may not use that kind of language for where you are because two people or a bunch of people can occupy the same place and time, but have very, very different ideas of history and future of the problems and the possibilities of their context, of, of who they are. And Paul is saying, wherever you find yourself, whatever happens, in his case, by the way, whether imprisoned or whether the victim of rival preachers or whether threatened with imminent execution by the Romans, whatever happens, like wherever you are, wherever you find yourself, whatever time you find yourself living in, live as the kind of person who interprets yourself and your context through the lens of gospel through the rampant availability of God, who is giving God's self to the world, who is reconciling the world to God's self for that open arms welcome into love, and who's calling us to create the kind of world that reflects the reign of God, rather than all of the ways that the brokenness of the world doesn't look like the reign of God, the world that we see right now. So um, for Paul, you know, wherever you find yourself in the presence of the kingdom of God breaking in, wherever you find truth or goodness or beauty breaking in, wherever you find justice happening, wherever you find mercy extended, wherever you find bravery lived out in honor of the world that God wants to see, you are on home turf regardless of where it is. And wherever you find people who are saying yes to gospel, yes to the world that Jesus is promising, you are among kindred uh, sisters and brothers, among your fellow 
countrymen and countrywomen, regardless of, of where you find that or what labels they carry. He says, that's the way you ought to move through this world and think of yourself and think of the world that you are creating. Act like it. Live like this is who you are and what you are a part of, rather than living like who you are is defined by the lines that we have drawn in the world or the labels that have been created that divvy up power in inequitable ways. The ways that we are divided and conquered, like that's not who we are anymore. Now he goes on, uh, the sense of like same team, it shows up again a little while later. This is the beginning of chapter two. He says, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Uh, same team, gang. Like if you have been awakened to the good news of gospel, if, if, if you are in it for the world that God wants to create, rather than the world that is broken the way we see it right now, then remember, same team with everybody else who is giving themselves to that same promise. Here's the problem, though. Cries and calls for unity can be subtle and insidious ways of exploiting people and exercising power. So hang with me for a moment. Um, it's not uncommon in history, and if you just think about history for a moment, you might be able to come up with some examples where somebody in power, whether it's an emperor or a king or a politician or a pastor, somebody in power in some space calls for unity. But what they really mean, if you're paying attention, is, is they mean that they want everybody to assimilate into the way that we have built things that works for the majority at the expense of the minority. Well, that's a pretty cynical way to call for unity, but it happens all the time. And then um, when people who aren't the most empowered and who aren't in the majority, when, when they call a time out and question the unity that's being called for, because it's really just a way of uh, exploiting or assimilating those people who aren't in power, when, when they call that out, they might be accused of being divisive, and sometimes when you bring these conversations into the church, you'll be accused of being divisive. But the version of unity, where the people with the most power or the people in the majority expect everyone else to assimilate into the world that they have built, that's not the kind of unity and that's not the path toward unity that this gospel describes, or that these scriptures describe. There's a very different vision of what unity is and how we will get there. And let me work this out for you because the letter goes on a little further. He writes, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but rather in humility value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. And in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. And here Paul uh, turns to this ancient hymn, this poem that tries to wrap its arms around the mystery of what they have experienced in Christ. And the poem goes like this. Christ being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant and being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Now, when the text talks about uh, Christ not considering equality with God something to be grasped or exploited or used to his own advantage, some translations actually render that that Christ did not consider his privilege to be something that he should cling to, but rather he should give it away and humble himself. 
And this is the way Paul says that you and I ought to relate to one another. This is the way Paul begins to work out the path toward unity that he's calling for. Now, if you read Paul's letters, um, there's some peculiar details that come up, not just in Philippians, but elsewhere in the letters he's written, like Romans or 1st or 2nd Corinthians, or like pick your Pauline letter in the New Testament. And there's parts of these letters that can feel kind of tedious, or maybe the whole letter feels tedious to you. I get that. But there's parts of these letters that can feel very tedious, and often it's when Paul is wading into some uh, really quite practical question that the community is asking. And often these questions are built on the problem of how do you take Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians with their very Jewish cultural and ethical and religious sensibilities and their very Gentile cultural and religious and ethical sensibilities, how do you make that work when it all gets together? And so it brings up questions that you and I have probably not been asking lately, like what do you do with meat at the shared meal that you're gonna have as a church family if that meat has come from a sacrifice that was offered at a temple to a pagan god, like, is it fine? I mean, we don't really believe that God is a god, so is it just a, a smart way to take advantage of some food that we can eat, or is there a real problem with that? And uh, the Jewish Christians and the Gentile Christians come to that question with very different pre-existing sensibilities and culture and ethical backgrounds. So Paul wades into strange questions like that, but here's uh, one of the challenges that scholars have wrestled with. If you read through the letters carefully, you'll discover that, that with different church communities that Paul is writing to, Paul has some slightly different answers to the same questions. Now, is Paul just inconsistent? Is he just confused? Is he changing his mind? Is he evolving? Well, one of the predominant theories that scholars have developed as they try to consider what's happening with these discrepancies and differences between the letters that Paul writes is that they observe that some of the churches that Paul writes to are occupied by, say, a majority of Jewish Christians and a minority of Gentile Christians. And in that situation, it seems the Jewish Christians have most of the power in that community. And then you have other churches that are occupied with a majority of Gentile Christians and a minority of Jewish Christians. And of course, in that case, the Gentile Christians might have most of the power. And it seems, watch this, it seems that what Paul is doing is that if, if the question is, what do we do about this issue where the Jewish Christians have one thing they're comfortable with and the Gentile Christians have another. It seems that if Paul is writing to a church uh, that's majority Jewish Christian, he actually tips the scale in favor of Gentile Christian sensibilities. And if he's writing to a church that's pr primarily Gentile Christian, he will tip the scale a little bit toward the, the cultural or ethical sensibilities of the Jewish Christians. As if to say, Whichever uh, group among you has the most privilege in your community, whoever is most empowered in your community, I'm actually gonna shift, I'm gonna tilt this thing toward the ones who don't and I'm asking you to do the same. Why? Because Christ in his privilege in God did not consider his privilege something to be grasped, but something to be given up for the benefit of the other. And those of you who have the most privilege are being invited to let it go the most for the benefit of the other. And that is a very different path toward unity than the one that we see again and again. So it turns out like on this path toward unity, it's not divisive to talk about who has the least and who is the most unsafe and who's been the most discriminated against and what kind of work do we have to do? That's not divisive. That's actually the way that we get to the kind of unity that's modeled in this text and the kind of unity that you have to reach for if you want the world that the gospel is promising. Same team, 
citizens of the kingdom of God, believers in the possibility of the world that God wants, shaped uh, with a reading of history and future that is, is set on the world that God promises with God's kingdom. And then as citizens of that world, uh, relating to everybody else um, the way that this gospel calls us to. So if you find yourself clinging or grasping to some kind of privilege, uh, you might be the one who's invited to let some of that go for the kind of unity that this text is begging us toward. Now, um, this, is, uh, this is very relevant, isn't it? Uh, I think, for example, of something that happened to me just a little while ago and how important this text was for the way that I've worked it out. Uh, I want to share this with you. Uh, I'm not super proud of it. I'm still working out what I can learn from it, but it's one of the places where this text has been most important for me lately. So let me tell you what happened. Uh, I was on a Zoom call uh, a couple of weeks ago, and uh, the call was with a handful of people. And I didn't know everyone on the call, but I knew of everyone in the call. And uh, it was a, a small meeting of pastors from around the country, uh, east coast to west coast, north to south. and uh, some of the people on the call are, are authors or, or teachers that I, I respect, or people whose work that I follow. And we were sort of having a conversation about our churches and uh, the desire that we have for a greater sense of belonging in the larger uh, world of, of church and some of the ways that we each have found ourselves a little bit estranged from that larger world. And I was excited for this conversation. Um, and excited to talk with these people, but I, I noticed that one of the people on the call, someone I didn't have a relationship with, uh, seemed very guarded, both in, in the things they said and in their body language. And then uh, at a point in the conversation when it really turned to be, like we really wanted to hear from this person, um, she said, and I'm, and I'm paraphrasing slightly because I, I won't get the exact language right, but she said, Basically, I gotta be honest, um, I'm looking at the Zoom call and half the Zoom call is four white men. And I just, I'm not sure I feel safe because of that. And I've spent a lot of time trying to heal from uh, what environments shaped by white men have done to me. And um, I've gotta do a lot of thinking about whether I would wanna be a part of something with so many white men. And I'm just confessing my immediate thoughts here, right? I did not know what to do with that. Uh, I felt defensive. I felt confused. I felt categorized. And for a while, it was really easy for me to focus on those feelings. And I kept thinking, like, what do I do with that? What do I do with that, right? I realized it created a sort of tension in me, almost like a, a clenching energy. And you might see where this is going, right? A defensiveness, a guardedness in me. And for a while, I really ruminated on my feelings in that interaction and I, the frustration that I had in that interaction. And then this text came to mind because I've been working on this Philippians text for a while now. And I just, couldn't deny the fact that this text, like very clearly speaking to the experience that I had just had, as if to say like, hey Jay, you feel a little threatened right now. And you're used to like being in meetings and walking into rooms where you can assume a certain amount of respect. 
and maybe you feel like you didn't get that and maybe you felt entitled to it or maybe you felt like something was taken from you that you had a right to hold on to. But the text says, right, especially for those of us who enjoy a lot of privilege, like you're gonna be tempted to cling to and hold on to and grasp and defend the things that you have. But the text says, that's not how we build the world that we want. That's not how we build the world of the gospel. That's not how we live as citizens of the world that's promised by the gospel. So you've gotta to learn to loosen that grip and let go a little bit. And perhaps instead of looking to my interests in that meeting, which are about who I am and how I felt, like what if you spent some time looking to the interests of that person who was brave enough to tell us what she was experiencing in that meeting. And then I, I found my, my defensiveness coming down and my tightened grip on my own desire for security to get loosened little by little as I wondered what might it be like for that person to tune into this call and uh, to see what she saw. And I've wondered um, what kinds of experiences must she have had in her life uh, that would trigger the feelings that she had when she saw me and a couple other white guys uh, in the meeting. And I still have a lot of work to do on what I can learn from that interaction uh, and what I'm gonna do with it. But man, um, this text really is the thing that created the possibility for me of, of realizing like, my experience of that moment may not be the most important thing that God wants me to focus on right now, right? Um, and the kind of unity that we are all desperate for, the kind of unity that we are longing for, it's not gonna be found if I don't learn to let my guard down and stop grasping for the privilege that I feel so entitled to. Uh, if I don't instead start asking other questions about the interests of the other uh, in a meeting or in my church or in the world, at large. Now here's another thing that's interesting. Um, this text doesn't end with Jesus giving everything up and laying everything down. It goes a little bit further and said that, uh, therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now here's the thing. This is a poem about Christ. Right? This is a, a devotional hymn about Christ. But Paul says, this is also a, a hymn about us. This is a, a story that we need to wrap our own lives around. And so we wrap our lives around the pattern of Christ relinquishing his privilege, which means we also wrap our lives around the pattern of Christ being lifted up, right? Death and resurrection isn't just for him, it's for us. And I, I don't think it's uh, just like a, a cute reward that God gives Christ, that Christ gets lifted up in response to his humility. But perhaps rather, it's, it's precisely when we have the confidence to let go of our privilege and to relinquish our rights that we are entering into that divine image in our life. And wherever you find the divine image, there will be an exaltation, there will be an uplift. Uh, a while ago, uh, in another teaching series during Lent, the same Christ hymn in Philippians 2 came up in teaching and we did a podcast episode, sort of a bonus one, uh, with me and Josh McManaway, who's um, a, a theologian uh, and a friend and who often joins our community here at Southland City Church. And we talked about how uh, many theologians have reflected on this Christ hymn set us beside uh, Adam and Eve in the garden, right? Because we have Christ who doesn't cling to his status or privilege as God, but lets go and stops grasping. 
Back then we, we have Adam and Eve, right? And Adam and Eve, the, the first thing that's said about humanity in that story is that they are bearers of the divine image, sacred carriers of divine power and worth. And then even though that's, that's what's true of them from the beginning, they grasp for the fruit that's forbidden, believing the lie that by grasping the fruit, they will become more godlike, not realizing that that's actually how things will start to break down. That like paradoxically, when we grasp for power or privilege or divinity, we are the least like God that we will ever be and we will break the world. But when we relinquish our privilege and our power and we stop fighting for our own sense of divinity or strength, that that's the most godlike we will ever be and that's how we will build the kind of world that God wants us to build. And that's how we'll act like citizens of the gospel. And perhaps that's also how we will be exalted and lifted up. I don't mean you individually or me individually. I mean we, the great big us that is groaning right now with brokenness and division. Uh, this is perhaps like how the story takes a turn. And so uh, friends, like I would encourage you, take some time with Philippians too. Um, don't just let me talk to you about it. I don't think that the things that we are discussing right now can be apprehended simply like at the level of the brain. I think the heart has to do some work. And a lot of us, we might need to meditate on, might need to ruminate on this hymn that our minds would become like God, who considered equality with God or privilege something that should not be grasped or clung to, but rather freely relinquished because, because we know who we are and we know what story we are a part of and we know the citizenship that we have. So we don't have to cling to our status or privilege to know that the divine imprint rests in our lives too and that we have been invited into the story written by the rampant availability of God and the God who gives God's self to us. So we can give it away. We can give the privilege away. We can create beloved communities of belonging where it's not the majority and those in power who demand a unity that requires the disempowered to assimilate into the world that works for the rest of us, but rather we can create the kind of world and the kind of unity um, when any of us with any kind of power gives it up so that our brothers and sisters can find belonging right alongside us too. Uh, spend some time with this text. Uh, let it work on you and see if it doesn't speak powerfully to the moment that we're living in when our black sisters and brothers are crying out for justice and we have some work to do to be a part of it. Grace and peace, friends.